I was just uh, talking to Bo, my new friend, about the outdoors, uh, how much we love the outdoors. I, every few weeks I try to go backpacking. I love fly fishing, um, hunting, being outside working with our animals at home, uh, out in the woods. I love riding my motorcycle. I love being out in nature. For me, it provides perspective. Uh, perspective I can't get uh, hardly any other way. For me, it's perspective that despite the chaos and disorder, confusion, uh, strife, struggle that exists in our world today, that God is actually still in control. In fact, he's as much in control of the world today as he was when he made it. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, Proverbs 8, 28 and 29. God is as much in control of every moment in time today as he was when he created time itself, when he made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, Genesis 1, 16 through 18. But not only that, God is as much in control of your life today as he was the day he called your life into existence. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, Psalm 139, 13. Yet maybe best of all, God is as much in control of every one of your days yet to come as he was the day he authored them. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, 16. You see, the question isn't whether or not God is in control. The question is whether or not you choose to believe that he's in control. And it matters. It matters not because what you believe changes God. It matters because what you believe changes you. Because what you choose to believe about God has a profound effect on how you respond to what he's doing in this world and in your own life. See, at the end of the day, it's all about the choices you make based on who you believe is ultimately in control of your life. You or God. C.S. Lewis wrote, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing into either a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Obviously, there's been a lot of turmoil in our world over the past couple of years, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety over things that have largely been outside of our control. And at times it has seemed like there are more questions than answers, and as a result, a lot of frustration has boiled over as people have made very different decisions, different choices about how to address all of that. Listen, even people from the same uh, political parties, for instance, people who otherwise share the same worldview, even people from the same families have made very different choices about how to respond to all of the turmoil brought on by the decisions that have to be made about things like viruses and vaccines and wars and the political and economic upheaval that has followed all of that. And I'll just tell you, one of the things that I've been so intensely interested in through all of that 
has been the way the church has responded. Because as much as has happened outside of our control these past couple of years, our response to all of that is still a choice. We still get to choose how we respond to circumstances and events that are often beyond our control. And I'll just tell you, as popular as it is these days to criticize what people refer to as the organized church, which, by the way, is just another name for what Jesus called the church, as popular as it has become to bash the American church today, you can't argue with many of the choices the church has made over just the past 12 months to address the profound needs in our society as a result of those events and circumstances that have happened beyond our control. Because while the world was busy fighting over how to respond to all of that, listen, whether you realize it or not, the church on the whole has been quietly doing something about it, doing more in fact, than anyone else. Scott Sauls, he's quoting from a recent Barna study from last year, says Christian philanthropy accounted for 70%. Think about that. 70% of all American philanthropy in 2022 at $300 billion in total from the church. Christians also outgave the U.S. government in addressing global poverty. Sauls says whatever folks may say or think, the church remains a seismic value add to the world. Now look, of all people in here, I know the church is far from perfect, but I couldn't be more grateful to be associated with an organized body of people who have made the choice, even with all of our differences within the church, to come together anyway and be the hands and feet of Jesus to a world that is lost and dying in its darkest hour. It is a radical response, a radical choice to be light in a world that is shrouded in darkness. And to be sure, it is a contrary way to live your life. And yet that's exactly how Jesus lived his life. Okay? Look, the gospel of Christ is a deeply subversive story about the most radical person who has ever walked the face of the earth. The way that Jesus chose to live his life was radically contrary to the expectations of everyone who ever encountered him. Uh, to the woman caught in adultery who expected to be stoned to death according to the Mosaic law, Jesus dismissed the angry mob, forgave her sins, and sent her home instead. To the Samaritan woman who, uh, at Jacob's well who expected Jesus, a Jew, to ignore not only her presence at the well, but her worth as a human being, given the fact that Samaritans were despised and considered inferior by the Jews, worse than dogs, actually. And yet, Jesus not only gave her dignity, he gave her the hope of eternal life. To the Pharisees who expected to be validated for their strict religious behavior, Jesus rebuked them for their hypocrisy instead. To the merchants who expected the temple to be a means of gaining material wealth and prosperity, Jesus flipped over their money tables and drove them out with a whip instead. And to his own followers who expected him to lead a revolt against the Roman occupation, Jesus willingly allowed himself to be taken into custody, mocked, stripped, beaten, and killed on a Roman cross. Instead, nothing Jesus did met the expectations of those who encountered him. He was a rebel to the religious establishment, a revolutionary to his followers, a fearless, uncompromising, and unapologetic preacher of the truth to the masses. He was a fierce defender of the helpless and the broken to the overlooked and unloved, and he was a beacon of pure light to those who are lost in darkness. Everything about the way Jesus lived his life was radically different than what people expected of him, and it was a choice 
that he made every single day to shine the light of truth and love in a world that largely wished to remain in darkness. Of course, uh, most of you probably already know all of that. But do you also know that your life is supposed to be just as radical as his, if not more? Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher, Luke 6.40. He also said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, John 14.12. The apostle John said, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, 1 John 2.6. The apostle Peter said, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his Steps, 1 Peter 2.21, and the Apostle Paul said, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. In other words, just like Jesus was radical, you and me, we're supposed to be radical too, but that means actively choosing the way of Christ every day of your life instead of the ways of this world. Do you know why? Because... Every moment of your life on this earth is infused with purpose, divine purpose. Every beating of your heart, every breath in your lungs, every single moment of your life has been given to you by God for a purpose, this great divine radical purpose for you to fulfill. And to be sure, listen, that's a radical way to live your life always because first of all, it will constantly defy the expectations of the world around you. And second, what living that way does to you and to others because of you is unlike anything else in this whole world. And listen, there's no other way to experience that, to become that, to actually be like Christ, to have that kind of experience and impact in this world than to choose to live radically just like Jesus did. But you have to understand, that is a choice that you make daily. The issue for most of us is we we look at the way Jesus lived as the ultimate standard, like the gold standard, something for us to aspire to, when as far as Jesus was concerned, that was the only standard. It's not something you, you, you work your way up to. No, as far as Jesus was concerned, the moment you belong to him is the moment you begin to act like him, which is a decidedly radical way to choose to live your life, and yet all too many professing believers willfully choose not to live that way. We, we claim to belong to Jesus while refusing to act like him. We choose instead something less than, something not quite as radical as the life God had designed for us because it feels like something we can control, something safe, something more predictable. Yet all the while, the life you were created and called to live means accepting and embracing the fact that even when our lives seem like they're out of control, more than we can bear, God is still in control, which means as we discussed last week, you don't have to be. You can let go and let God be in control, which is especially important to understand when life gets hard, when there is real suffering, devastation, trials, tribulation in your life, as we're going to see in the story today, when it feels like the world is spinning out of control, to accept that God is still in control. First of all, uh, that takes a tremendous amount of pressure off of you. And second, it allows you to choose to follow him into an unknown future, into uncertain circumstances and into the promise of a better tomorrow even though you can't see it from today which is radically different than what the world expects you to do 
when we sold everything we owned and walked away from two very successful businesses to move 5,000 miles away to Alaska and start all over again, people told me I, I was crazy. My family, people close to me said, you're nuts. What are you doing? It's not what anyone expected. Can I be honest with you? I didn't expect it either. But that's what God told us to do. At the end of the day, it's all about choices you make based on who you believe is ultimately in control of your life. You or God. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and what will be part two of the sermon we started last week within this series as we continue to work our way through the book of Revelation. We'll go to chapter nine where we left off and read verses 13 through 19. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So just as a quick review, back in chapter eight, John describes the first four trumpet plagues in six verses, and yet it takes them more than three times as much space to cover the next two plagues because of the severity of the calamities that follow with increasing intensity all along the way. Back in chapter eight, verse seven, we saw plagues of hail and fire mixed with blood that scorched the earth. And then in verse eight, a burning mountain that fell into the sea, turning it to blood, leaving death in its wake. And then in verses 10 and 11, we saw a blazing star from heaven falling into the fresh waters, causing bitterness and death. And then a darkening of the sun and the moon that plunged the world into darkness in verse 12. And then last week in the first half of this chapter, a swarm of demonic locusts was released from the abyss by Satan to torment unbelievers in verses one through 11 which brings us today to the sixth trumpet plague, the second woe, which is even worse, as a demonic cavalry, 200 million strong, come charging across the landscape, killing a third of all the unbelievers on the earth. And so, with the sounding of the sixth trumpet, the second woe has begun, and when the sixth angel sounds his trumpet, a voice from the golden altar commands the release of the four angels of destruction. Uh, the golden altar described in Exodus 30, 1 through 3, and Hebrews 9, 4 as the incense altar. And we know from chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, that the seventh seal and the seven trumpets were God's response directly to the prayers of the saints for vengeance. We covered all that, which means the judgment being executed here at the sounding of the sixth trumpet is a direct response to the prayers of the martyrs as offered to God by the angel of the altar. Again, who's described in chapter eight, verses three through five. We know it's not actually God's voice himself because it's offered before God 
or in the presence of God. And so the angel priest, whose first response to the prayers of the saints back in chapter eight, verse five, was to hurl the censer filled with fire to the earth, initiating the trumpet judgments. He now gives a second response to these prayers of the martyrs, the saints, initiating the final stage of judgments by commanding the death angels to be released, who've been bound. They've been restrained at the great river Euphrates, which was the eastern boundary of the empire. Keep in mind that all of this direction, all of these commands are coming from the golden altar before God in response to the prayers of his people. It's a stark reminder that divine retribution is a personal act of a holy, sovereign God whose love and authority has been rejected unbelievably rejected by unbelievers, people who have been given opportunities, as we've seen over and over and over and over and over again from the beginning of this book to repent and be saved. In other words, even though that wasn't God's voice, this is all God's doing based on choices that people have freely made to accept or reject him. We'll come back to that in a minute. So the four death angels are released and we don't have a lot of information about these demonic beings as they're not mentioned in any other apocalyptic writings, but we know that God himself is speaking directly through an intermediary, this unnamed angel at the altar, which is probably intentional in order to emphasize uh, God's part in all this, his sovereign uh, presence behind all these commands that are given. So the angels, both good and bad, remain unnamed, but we do know that the death angels have been kept, held, restrained, bound, against their will, just like the demons confined to the abyss in verses one through three. These four angels have been held at the great river Euphrates, prepared to kill a third of mankind at the appointed time, at the hour and day and month and year, as commanded by God. The river Euphrates, by the way, has always for Israel uh, represented that which has kept civil chaos, uh, wanton violence, if you will, at bay. Uh, when God made a covenant with Abram, he promised him and his seed the land that stretched from the Nile to the Euphrates in Genesis 15, 18. Also, it's referenced in Deuteronomy eleven twenty four 24, in Joshua 1, 4, the Euphrates marked the boundary between Israel and her chief enemies. So in Isaiah 8, 5 through 8, the invading armies of Assyria, for instance, are represented as a mighty flood in which great, the great river overflows its banks and sweeps over Judah. In fact, uh, Israel's ancient captors, Assyria and Babylon, had come from the great river Euphrates, and in John's day, it marked the eastern boundary of Rome's influence, beyond which barbarian powers, especially Parthia, constantly threatened the empire's peace. Uh, Originally, Pompeii had established it as a boundary in the first century BC, and it remained as such while John was writing this book. Uh, In the apocryphal writing, First Enoch, 56 and 57, the angels of punishment are referred to there in that book. They call them the angels of punishment. They turn to the east, to the Parthians and the Medes to get them to attack Israel. Okay, so uh, this is all through Israel's history. The Euphrates held great significance for them as a physical restraint against their enemies. And yet, as we see here in John's vision, it also served as a spiritual restraint against the death angels. That is until the sixth trumpet sounds. And so under the fourth seal, you'll remember a fourth of the human race was put to death back in chapter six, verse eight. And now a third are to be killed by this demonic horde as it sweeps across the land on horses with heads like lions, heads, tails like serpents, 
with red fire, blue smoke like sapphire, uh, yellow rancid sulfur spewing from the horses' mouths, reflecting the colors of their riders' breastplates, moving against those who everywhere else are referred to as the inhabitants of the earth, which, by the way, is a standard designation in Scripture, uh, certainly throughout this book, for those who are hostile toward God, unbelievers. And, of course, we've already seen in the previous woe, God commanding the demon, demons to, to leave his people unharmed, which just further demonstrates the fact that all of the forces of history are under the sovereign control of God. Okay, no matter how out of control this world seems to be, in our story, in practice today, it's not Satan, it's not the Antichrist, it's, it's not... Uh, your spouse who you're really mad at. It's not your horrible boss. It's not evil human beings calling the shots. Ultimately, no. Listen, as horrifying as all of this is, God is still in control. Let's finish the story then for today, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It's breathtaking. I mean, as jarring as all of this is, these plagues against humankind, the, all of the wars, and disease, and turmoil, and natural disasters, and demonic attacks, and death. I mean, as bad as all of that is, the most shocking part of it all is the fact that given the opportunity to repent and be saved from all of it, there are still people who refuse. Even though that's the very reason they're spared to begin with. You understand, in his great grace and mercy, God is giving them a choice to repent and be saved or perish without him. Just the fact that John says they did not repent is evidence that they could have had they chosen to, but they didn't. They don't. They continue not only to deny God, but to worship the very source of their misery. And such is the delusion of sin. In fact, in antiquity, heathen idolatry was considered to be worship rendered to demons. The ancient Jewish writing Jubilees uh, 11.4 speaks of the people of Ur being assisted by malignant spirits in making graven images to worship. And of course, in our story here, John says they did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons, the source of their suffering. Robert Mounts put it this way. He said, nowhere will you find a more accurate picture of sinful humanity pressed to the extreme. One would think that the terrors of God's wrath would bring rebels to their knees. Not so. Past the point of no return, they respond to greater punishment with increased rebellion. Such is sinful nature, untouched and unmoved by the mercies of God. It's breathtaking. So the two demonic woes of chapter 9 are past. God has meted out punishment on those who do not bear the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember, God's own people are protected during this time from the plagues that fall on the rest of the human race, as we saw back in verse 4. And so many believers will endure the tribulation that comes from a world that has willfully chosen to reject God, but for those who choose to follow Christ, they'll never be touched by the wrath of God. We covered all this earlier in the book. Jesus guaranteed us that we would experience as Christians the wrath of men 
And he guaranteed us that we would be spared the wrath of God. It's a promise from God that we cannot, uh, that we can count on no matter, uh, listen, no matter how chaotic, and no matter how confusing this world can be, no matter the strife or struggle, we can count on the goodness of the promises of God to be our help, our provision, our supply for every need because no matter what is going on around us, God is still in control. And so the, the, the first point of this two-point sermon, if you're keeping an outline, the first point from last week was that because God is still in control, first of all, nothing happens without his permission. And we went through all of that. Secondly, as we see in our story here today, even though God is still in control, you still have a choice to make. Okay, you still have to choose this day and every day after whom you will serve, as Joshua explained to God's people in Joshua 24, 15. Because listen, just because God is in control doesn't mean you have no choice to either follow him or this world. No, you absolutely get to make that choice and you get to make it every single day. How many times, think of it this way, how many times throughout the Old Testament did God say to his people, listen up, you can do this. You can, you can choose to follow my will. And if that's what you choose, then this is what will happen. Blessings, promises fulfilled, a bright future, and on and on. Or he would say, you can choose door number two. You can make the choice not to follow my will. And if that's what you choose, then this is what will happen. Calamity, suffering, loss, misery. Now you understand either way, no matter what choice they made, God made it clear that he was still in control of the outcome. But the choice and the consequences of that choice was completely up to them to decide. It's exactly what we see in our story today, the free choice that people get to make to accept or reject God in the future at the end of this age, even after they're given a sobering taste of what eternity will be like without him. In fact, we see the same thing from the very beginning with Adam and Eve. You can do this, right? You can live according to my will, my command, and you'll enjoy eternal blessings and reward. Or you can choose what's behind door number two and take a bite from the fruit of that tree over there and the whole world comes under the curse of death. God was in control either way. God was in control the whole time, no matter what choice they made, but they were still given a choice and they were responsible for that choice. It was that way in the beginning with Adam and Eve. It was that way all throughout Scripture with God's people. It will be that way in the future at the end of this age. And I'm telling you, it's that way right now, today, in your own life. You have a choice to make. A daily choice to follow Christ or to follow this world. You understand, this life spent following Jesus, I hope you know this, it's a lot more than just repeating a prayer at the end of a church service and then waiting for heaven. For the Christian... That's who I'm talking to here, right? For the Christian, choosing Christ every day is about making decisions every day that affect your relationship with him. It's not about how good or bad you want to be. I just talked to a, a fellow the other day who was trying to explain to me that he's hoping to spend the second half of his life checking enough boxes in the column of good things he's done that they'll outweigh in the end the column he's already filled up in the first half of his life, bad things he's done. It's not about how good or bad you want to be. You, you, never, you ain't never going to earn your way to heaven. You will never be good enough, not on your own. 
It's about how close to him you want to be. That's why we eliminate certain things from our lives. The apostle Paul said all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, listen. Your salvation by God is fixed. Your proximity to God is not. The big difference, your salvation by God is fixed. Your proximity to God is not. In other words, you cannot be more saved or less saved. You're either born again or you're not. But your closeness to God is not fixed. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. In other words, hey guys, since we've been saved by Jesus Christ, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We have the option to draw near to God or not. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Obviously, drawing close to God is a choice that we make every day. David wrote, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1, this is the very picture of a man who devoted his life to following God by pursuing closeness to God. And that was a daily choice for him, just as it is for you and me, a daily choice to devote our lives to Christ and his purposes in our lives. When uh, King Saul chose to follow this world instead of God and keep some of the enemy's spoil after God told him to, to destroy all of it, people thought that Saul's sin was that he violated the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, because he was taking for himself what belonged to God. But listen, by far and away, Saul's greatest sin was that he violated the first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He failed to put God before everything else in his life when he chose to set his affections on the things of this world. And I'm just telling you, we do the exact same thing. When we fail to choose Jesus every day, instead choose to live a life that is a little less radical than the one Jesus lived. When we set our affections on anything that stands between us and closeness to him. And when we do that, we're assuming, whether you realize it or not, you're assuming that this world has something to offer you that is better than what Jesus is offering you. That something less than radical devotion to Christ is somehow adequate. Listen to me. Anything less than radical devotion to Christ will never be adequate. It will never be enough to satisfy what could be in your life, what God is offering you. It's just what we see in this story. Soren Kierkegaard, he's a 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian. He said it this way, the sense of human adequacy is the primary barrier to genuine faith. Think about that. Our sense of human adequacy is the primary barrier to genuine faith. Whether expressed as confidence in science, moral progress, or military might, the human feeling of self-reliance distances a person from his or her creator. You see, there's nothing inherently within us or in this world that will ever be adequate to meet our greatest needs or satisfy our deepest longings outside of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means choosing him first every single day of your life because there's simply nothing in this world that will ever be adequate for us apart from Christ. I'm telling you, even an entire lifetime of accumulation and achievement cannot satisfy like one moment in the presence of Jesus. 
And so we're left to choose. Every single day, we choose. Will I fully devote myself today to Christ? Or will I devote myself to something else? Something a little less radical. And don't be fooled. Every day the choice you make has a direct effect on your life and also the lives of those around you. The truth is, if our culture today witnessed more Christians actually living radically devoted lives to Christ on a daily basis, our influence in all facets of society would be profoundly greater than it already is. And according to the research we read earlier, the church is already having a tremendous effect on the world for their good and for God's glory. Imagine what it would be like if we chose to follow him radically, follow him every day more than we follow this world or the ways of this world. I'm telling you, we wouldn't need social justice movements to bring about change in our country because the observable witness of the church through men and women who have radically devoted themselves to living lives that cannot be ignored would shatter the expectations of this world and it would capture the hearts of the lost. German pastor, theologian, he was a conspirator against the Nazi regime, martyr, he's one of my heroes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who lived a life that was unquestionably radically devoted to Christ. He once said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. You see, sometimes what God asks us to do seems impossible, radical. Well, yeah, indeed it is radical and sometimes even impossible outside of the Spirit of Christ at work within us. But we get so focused on ourselves and this world, especially in times like these when the, the pressure is turned up, when things seem like they're spiraling out of control, it's so much easier to focus on what we think we cannot do instead of focusing on what God absolutely can do and will do, has promised to do through us when we choose to follow him every single day. That's, that's the beauty of this life, even when it gets hard. The fact that we still get to choose how to respond to circumstances and events that are often beyond our control because we know that he is still in control. Yeah, yeah, it's a radical way to live. You bet it is. To choose to be light in a world that is shrouded in darkness it's a contrary way to live your life, and yet that's exactly how Jesus lived his life, and he expects no less of you. Don't you see? Every moment of your life on this earth is infused with purpose, every moment. Divine purpose, every beating of your heart, every breath in your lungs, every single moment of your life has been given to you by God for a purpose, this great, divine, radical purpose for you to fulfill. And yet living that way is something you have to choose. Every morning, every evening, you have to choose every day. That's what it all, that's what it all boils down to. The choices you make day by day based on who you believe is ultimately in control of your life. You or God. Let's pray.